Father, long ago, you spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days you have spoken to us by your Son, whom you appointed the heir of all things, through whom you also created the world, for he is the radiance of your glory and the exact imprint of your nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so we ask that you would speak to us now through your son and uphold us by the word of his power that your glory may radiate through us as it has radiated through him to all the world. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. Good evening, everyone. Um, I want to begin by just confessing how cute toddlers are when they talk. And, of course, when they're not talking back, of course. Uh, Just the way they phrase things, they try to say things. Sometimes children haven't quite yet developed the right articulation of certain sounds and words. Um, And it's just cute. But it's not cute when that continues on into your teens and on into your adulthood, right? There's different levels of language. There's a two-year-old language, and we find that adorable for what it is. But then there's also grown-up, mature language, and we find that necessary to communicate and to show that we have grown up and we understand things about the world. If 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 I was to talk to you guys with a two-year-old vocabulary, you would find me very boring, maybe adorable for about a week or two, maybe. But after that, you get kind of tired of me oversimplifying every single thing I try to say, because then you're going to be like, okay, I know way more than this dude. He can't lead me past what I was X amount of years ago, right? Um, Unfortunately, I have a hunch that Christianity is in a struggle right now with its language, On one hand, we use really sophisticated language and people get really lost. Consider this. We have 2,000 years of history. We have a 2,000-year-old vocabulary. We have perfected the way of talking about certain things. So to correct this, what we sometimes do is we say, all right, let's squeeze all of that history out And what we are left with is two-year-old vocabulary to talk about Jesus. And that's wonderful to get a baby into the faith. And I mean like a a Christian baby. Like we need the simple language to start. But there's a time when we have to grow up too. But my hunch is that we have done really good at trying to reduce and simplify our wonderful, deep, complex gospel into a very simple construct that a two-year-old could understand and adults that are two years old in their faith. Um, And that's been a good thing to get them to kind of understand Christ without a lot of high language. But then we never teach them the grammar and the syntax and the language of growing up. And so we have... People have been Christians for many years still talking like two-year-olds. And that's, okay, maybe we'll say, oh, that's cute and that's fine. But here's the problem that I am experiencing as a pastor and as I talk to people and observe culture is that people turn away from the faith because they're never led into the adult version of it. And if you are to continue to practice your childhood as you age, you will get very bored with that life. 
And people, therefore, are turning their backs on Christianity, not because Christianity is lacking, but because they were never pressed to grow into their faith. So they get bored as adults with a two-year-old faith. Is this tracking? If we make things too simple for too long, it doesn't challenge us and it doesn't grow us. We outgrow it. And this is something I don't want to have happen to us, to myself, or to the church at large. I felt this way when I read um, Athanasius of Alexandria, also known as Athanasius the Great. He's a 4th century Christian. He wrote a beautiful short book called On the Incarnation. And it's a masterpiece, according to C.S. Lewis. He has high standards. And so um, I echo what he says. And reading this made me realize, wow, we don't know how to talk about Christ. And I'm not going to go exhaustively into how should we talk about Christ. I just want to kind of introduce us to the life of Athanasius. And then what did he write? And then how does this help direct us as Christians to grow into maturity in our appreciation and worship and adoration of Christ? So that he's more than just a nice guy. So we, we kind of would cringe when we see people wearing t-shirts that Jesus is my boyfriend or my best friend. Like he's a lot more than just a therapeutic help me feel better about my self-presence. But that's sort of where we've left him. He came to understand us so he can help us feel better about ourselves. If you simply believe in him, you won't go to hell, you'll go to heaven. It's a lot more to it than that, to be honest. Um, so we need a 2,000-year-old vocabulary. You know the two-year-old vocabulary. Now behind that, have a 2,000-year-old vocabulary and learn how to use parts of it. That's how you master language. You know how to talk to a child, but you don't talk to everybody like that. Now do we? <laughs> um, now, I've been encouraging you guys for some time. I even sent an email with a link to it. It's totally up to you. No pressure at all to read On the Incarnation by Athanasius. However, um, I did convince Tyler our own Tyler Glenn back there to read it um, because I was sharing some of it with him. He's like, I need to read this. So he read it. And here is what he texted me upon finishing it. <laughs> it's so good. I have to quote it. He said this, reading Athanasius is like the ideological version of watching a slasher film. That hooked me. I was like, where are you going with that? <laughs> he said, the fact that anything still exists other than Christianity is shocking. In other words, reading Athanasius spelled out the reason for Christ's coming so clearly, so convincingly, and so powerfully that it makes you wonder how Christianity isn't believed everywhere. Well, maybe because we're not willing to actually go into the depths of why Christ came. Maybe that's one reason. So here's Athanasius. To understand, um, to appreciate our doctrine of Christ and where it came from, um, we have to understand the battle that went behind that. In the 4th century, that's 300s AD, there was a man named Athanasius who was born in a lower class Coptic Egypt. So the Egyptians uh, are called the Coptics, and he was born as a Coptic in the lower class. So he's just like this like uneducated guy initially, and um, just kind of normal, like just just wasn't really born with privileges or anything. 
no privileges, just, just born in that lower class. And he, what ends up happening is God has a calling on his life and it's acknowledged and he rises up into a position. And what he does through his life is he essentially becomes this larger than life figure in our history. He's a name we should know. He is a pillar of the church. In fact, that's actually what Gregory, the theologian, one of the church fathers, called Athanasius, one of the church fathers. He called him not just one of like the leaders of the early church, but a pillar of the church. Like without Athanasius, in other words, our doctrines crumble. Like he helped to hold up what was becoming a very controversial topic, the topic of the nature of Christ. Um, a little bit more to know about him in his early life. He was dark and short. So there's hope. I'm not dark. I'm very white. But he was short as well. And that's me. I'm very short. But he was very dark and very short. So much so that his enemies called him the black dwarf. That wouldn't be politically correct today. But that's what they said about him. So if they were tweeting, they would have um, hashtagged Athanasius as the black dwarf. Um, he was powerful. Athanasius was well, uh, what was, what struck people most about him other than his appearance and his shortness was that he was powerful in holiness and discipleship discipline. Um, it was said that his enemies did not fear his intellect or his charisma. It's not because he didn't have intellect or charisma. He had both of those, but these the things Americans highlight in people, he's smart, he's outgoing or he's attractive or whatever. Like these things, did not make his enemies tremble. But rather, it was his discipline, his roots among the people that he connected with them, and his fiery spirit and his profound and unshakable conviction that made him invincible. That's what made his enemies tremble, was he was a godly man and embodied godliness where he went. He became bishop in 328 over all of Egypt and Libya. So if you don't know what a bishop is, you have pastors, and then you have bishops. And bishops sort of manage the pastors and oversee the work of all the churches under their care. Um, so he was the bishop of all of Egypt and Libya. It's a very, very high position he was given. So that's his early life. He rose up to the to becoming bishop. Now, um, right before he became bishop, so this is now 325 AD, 325. Right be, this is three years before he becomes bishop, a huge controversy erupted in his city of Alexandria. Alexandria is one of the the um, early Christian communities, uh, one of the hotbeds of Christianity, and it's in the heart of Egypt. And in Alexandria, this huge controversy arose. And the question was, was Christ co-eternal with the Father? Was Christ co-eternal with the Father? In other words... We would say God the Father has existed from eternity past, right? There was never a time when God was not. Everything came from God. He was always there, always has been there, always will be there. So that was solidified by everybody. But Christ, the Son of God, the Son of the Father, the question was, was he of the same nature as the Father, or did he have some other level of being? So here's what happened is there was this bishop of Alexandria named Alexander. Very convenient. Alexander, bishop of Alexandria. Later, this would become Athanasius' place, right? So Athanasius works with um, this bishop Alexander um, as a young man. Alexander says, yes, Christ was co-eternal with the Father. 
So when the Father existed in eternity past, Christ was there too. There was never a time when there was just Father and no Son. He was always there with him. That's what Alexander said. But there was a very popular, very charismatic, very well-loved, if they had podcasts back then, everyone listened to this guy's podcast, not Alexander's. His name was Arius. And Arius was a teacher, so lots of people that went out to become pastors in other parts of the world knew of Arius' teachings, and they liked him. And he was a popular priest in his local church, and the local community loved to hear him. So here you have this powerful pastor and this bishop, and they say two different things. Because Arius is saying, no, Christ was not co-eternal with the Father. There was a time when Christ was not, is his catchphrase. There was a time when Christ was not. Meaning, the Father at some point brought Christ into being. Which would make him a creature. creature, Part of creation. Now, Arius explained, um, that doesn't make Christ the same as you and I. He's the highest of God's creatures. In fact, God's given everything of creation to him. But there is a time when he was brought into being. So you can see why this would have maybe stirred the pot a little bit. And um, so it it was at first very civil. Um, Alexander the bishop and Arius the priest would talk and say, you're wrong, you're wrong. Probably coffee kind of conversations and nerds nerding out in theology. Like, I don't quite see it your way. But eventually became more serious and the followers began to get involved. And it would have probably stayed in Alexandria and just been a local squabble. Except that Alexander the bishop, as the bishop, felt it was his duty to take action. So what he did is he stripped Arius of his priestly duties. You're no longer a pastor. And that's what caused the uproar. All the people that loved Arius rose up in protest. And that's when word got to the emperor, who was... You should know, um, if you know even a tiny bit of church history, this was Constantine, the guy who stopped the persecution of Christians. Word of this dispute, they, it took to the streets. People were marching with signs and having parades and protests and choosing different sides with their slogans and pictures of their heroes on their cards. And this was a full-on battle for who is Christ. And so when Constantine got word of this, he called the first ever church council. It was in Nicaea in 325. And the reason this was so important is because this was an issue of salvation. How do we become saved? Um, because if, if Christ is a creature, then he becomes a model for salvation, not our salvation proper. In other words, if Christ is a, is a creature, then he's showing us how we must live in order to join him with the Father. But if Christ is co-eternal with the Father and of the same essence eternally of the Father, then something different in salvation is happening, that Christ is actually enacting something no human being can enact or do. So this is a huge, this is not just like, well, let's have a doctrinal discussion about who is Christ. This, this actually has ramifications for how we talk about the gospel. So, um, it became public and, um, he, Constantine gathered all the bishops from around the world, almost three, they, some, the numbers vary, no one really counted, but it was some 300 bishops all gathered. 
So you have bishops from every part of the Christian world. And what a moment this was. One author described this as a new Pentecost. Never had the church seen itself represented from all over the world in one place. You're seeing somebody from Rome and you've never left Jerusalem in your life. You're seeing someone from uh, Cappadocia or Constantinople, Alexandria, somewhere out further in the wilderness, somewhere more in the west. Uh, you've got this representation of people you've heard of. There are some famous heroes in this room. There are people who are missing limbs and their faces are marred because of the persecutions not that long ago that Constantine just put an end to. They're seeing for the first time the evidence of the gospel reaching the world. And that must have been a shocking moment. And young Athanasius was there as the secretary to Alexander, who was a bishop and was there. So he gets to see this. And so the council happens. Now, they were gathering over a bunch of things. Constantine's like, we got to talk about a few things, like how do we ordain priests and, how, and pastors and how do we do these things and, and just some sort of like house cleanup. And on like the bottom of the list of the agenda was this Arius-Alexander controversy. That was actually at the bottom of the agenda. It wasn't a big deal to most people. Most people came to the council without a horse in the race. They thought it was just some squabble among the, the, the Greek-speaking Christians down there in Alexandria. Like, that's just their thing. But here's what happened. When Arius, when his position is read out loud to everybody, suddenly every head in that room turned, and everybody suddenly had a horse in this race. Because what they heard was so blasphemous to the majority of the Christian leaders that they couldn't, Arius's message could not even get finished. They rip the document out of his hands and shred it and trample it on the ground. And people are screaming from all quarters and mostly, you lie, you heretic, and just all kinds of things and accusations start coming out. And according to tradition, St. Nick, good old Christmas St. Nick, who was there, he punches Arius in the face. It got really heated because this was like the most crazy thing they ever heard. And they couldn't believe that this was taking root in parts of the church. And so, so this was so swiftly enacted upon that Constantine says, we need to clean this up. And so this is where they create what's called the Nicene Creed. Um, there was the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. You might have heard that, right? The Apostles' Creed is pretty condensed um, belief. That had already been floating around. But they said this isn't enough to battle Arianism this belief that Christ is a creature. So they then draft out, and Athanasius is considered one of the people who's playing a significant part in writing out this new creed, the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed is essentially the same, but it's a lot thicker and fuller, and it includes phrases like... Um, Christ is a God from God, light from light, co-eternal with the Father. They're making it very clear that Christ is in an eternal position with the Father, and he's the same substance of the Father. God from God, light from light. You see what they're doing? He was not created. He was begotten from eternity past, but never created. Um, so this is what they establish. And the Nicene Creed is signed by everybody. Those who refuse to sign it are excommunicated. They're recognized as not part of the Christian church. Um, so that's the Nicene Creed. Athanasius plays a big part in this. But this was not the end. Three years after this signing of the Nicene Creed, Alexander dies. Athanasius takes his post as the bishop of Egypt and Libya. In, he's in Alexandria. Um, but the battle still wait, rages on. Arius is incredibly popular. He has a friend. His, his name's Eusebius. And Eusebius actually has a seat in Constantine's court. 
So Eusebius keeps whispering things to Constantine. And this whole political drama plays out, which we don't have time for. But um, essentially, the battle's not done. And here's how I see it. The devil would see to it with all of his effort that Arianism, the belief that Christ is a creature, would prevail over the world. This is how important this was to the church. So Athanasius spent the rest of his life, the rest of his life devoted to this issue. He never tired in waging war against this heresy called Arianism. Now, pause. Arianism is not the same thing Hitler fought against, okay? That's a totally, that's a racial thing. Uh, Arianism is dealing with a doctrinal thing, um, the belief that Christ is a creature. Just clear that up, okay? So when we hear Arianism, it's not what we're talking about. Um, Athanasius was so ruthless in his battle against this and so staunch in upholding a proper view of Christ that there's actually a slogan that he became known by. It was the world against Athanasius and Athanasius against the world. That's what people would chant about him. And so and it, was t- it was taken up in short as Athanasius against the world. Because it seemed though that nobody wanted to stand with him. That's not true. People did. But Athanasius was the leader of the fight. And it seemed that just the opposition came relentlessly from all directions. And so um, here's what the enemies of Athanasius did. They, they launched constant lies and attacks against him. The first one was that he dabbled in magic. Yep. He's a sorcerer. Uh, second was that he was a tyrant over the Christian flock of Egypt and Libya. All these kinds of absurd, you know, accusations of his be- like becoming rich and sl- making everybody slaves. Um, he was accused, this is good, he was accused of killing a bishop named Arsenius, cutting off his hand and using that hand to perform rites of, mu- rites of magic during Christian worship. So there's your priest with someone's hand just doing these like witchcraft things. This accusation got all the way up to the local courts, um, Constantine's like regional courts, and uh, so was so much persuasion against Athanasius that he was actually called to give account for himself. Can you imagine? You are the pastor of a very large number of churches, and you're called to account for, did you kill another bishop, cut off his hand, and are you using it for sorcery and worship? Um, but here he is um, in all of his good nature coming up to defend himself Um, so he shows up and the court reads all the charges against Athanasius and all Athanasius does is he brings in they they read the charges he turns around he brings in a cloaked figure and the cloaked figure he uncovers his hood and behold it was Arsenius the man Athanasius is accused of killing well, all the Arians were livid at this. And so they say, well, okay, maybe he didn't kill Arsenius, but he definitely cut off his hand and he's using it for magic ceremonies. And so Arsenius raises his hand and pulls back his sleeve. Oh, there's his hand. And then the Arian's like, it's the other hand. And so Arsenius raises his arm, pulls back the sleeve. There's another hand. And then all Athanasius says is, what kind of a monster did you think Arsenius was? One with three hands? <laughs> and then the court erupts in laughter, and the Arians are angry because they feel that they were lied to by the sources of this um, argument or this accusation. Um, I, I, lo- I just love those old stories that come out like that. You can tell they're perfected over being retold for hundreds of years. It just has that feel to it of legend. Um, 
so his time as bishop was hard. He was exiled um, five times. Exiled means that people rose up against you and it was either not safe for you to stay in your position or you were told by other authorities you can't be in your position. Five times. Uh, there's different circumstances between them. Um, uh, but uh, his five times in exile totaled 17 years. So he actually spent 17, of his, 17 years of his life on the run. Uh, he had a lot of enemies that hated the th- idea of Christ being co-eternal with the Father. Uh, this is a demonic controversy, right? I mean, how crazy can people get? Let Christ be exalted or not. Like, like let it go. Um, he, uh, at one point, he was, um, he would often, what he'd often do is he would flee to the Egyptian wilderness. Now, do you know who's in the Egyptian wilderness? Any of you have been around for long enough? Remember anyone out there in the Egyptian desert? Macarius. I heard several of you. Well done. Yeah, he would go out there to those monks out there. Uh, he knew them so well that they actually developed a network system of, of making, um, hiding Athanasius from, from little cell to cell. So that the soldiers, when they come out to the wilderness looking for him, they could never track him down. They're always right behind him through all their little secret tunnels and just different ways of transporting him. He was moved all around. So he made friends there. He learned a lot. Uh, he taught them about the true doctrines of Christ and they were on his side. He had powerful people on his side in that regard. But the Egypt, uh, the, uh, the soldiers caught on to where he was going. So at one point when he's exiled, they actually just created a wall of soldiers so that he couldn't get into the wilderness. So what he did instead is he was smuggled into a boat and he was being taken up the Nile River into the wilderness. And there was a boat of soldiers coming up from behind them. And um, the people in the boat had Athanasius like, the soldiers are coming. And Athanasius like, oh, good. So he, so the the boat of soldiers coming up from behind him says, hey, have you seen Athanasius? And then Athanasius himself stands up and says, yes, I have seen him. He's not that far ahead of you. If you keep going, you shall overtake him. And they said, thank you, as they pass him. (laughs) Eventually, there was victory, as you and I think of Arianism as ridiculous, right? That means Athanasius, his efforts actually won. They ended up winning. Um, but it took a, it was a long battle. He dies in 373, never actually fully sees his own victory. He just he lived in the struggle. But it was after him that a new generation of theologians arose. And if you know your church history, you might recognize the Cappadocian fathers. Uh, these men arose when Athanasius passed. They became the, they, they took on the torch and they like solidified what we now today called Orthodox Christianity like straight, true Christianity. Um, so we believe what we believe. Um, so like Basil the Great, um, Gregory the Theologian, Gregory of Nyssa, those are the Cappadocians. Um, they stood on Athanasius's shoulders. Like what he laid the groundwork for then these great theologians to build upon and then the church just kept growing from there. So that's that's Athanasius's life. Um, Arianism eventually... Uh, fell apart because it never really gave an answer to salvation. That was its great problem. Over time, the church began to realize all they're doing is using these witty sayings. Their, what, their proposition doesn't actually solve the human problem. And that's what ended up making Arianism fade away, even though it keeps coming back in various forms and is still around today in various forms. But like, like, like Ecclesiastes says, right? There's nothing new under the sun. Everything just keeps getting rehashed with a new brand on it. Um, in fact, I could tell you right now. Uh, I shouldn't. Well, yeah, well, yeah. 
Yeah. So a name a lot of people might know is like Rob Bell. Rob Bell, um, I don't know if he himself believes this. He's a very, very popular Christian teacher, New Age Christian teacher. Um, he, I don't know if he believes this himself, but he has definitely encouraged others who teach things like Christ was an example for us to live, for human flourishing. Well, yes, Christ is the image of a true human and flourishing, but Christ is not just a leader for human flourishing. Why are we saying that as Christians? Oh, because the world doesn't want to worship Christ as God. We just need an example, a model of how to live. So what we're doing is we're reducing Christ in a lot of sections of Christianity to just a model. Well, that's exactly what Arianism was about. He's not God from God, light from light. He is an example of as the highest of all God's creatures for how we are to get to heaven. Like this is, I mean, this stuff is still around. And this is, we need to be aware of that. Um, Justo Gonzalez is a great church historian. He wrote this really long church history, which I actually have read. Um, he said this about Athanasius. Uh, he said that Athanasius argued that the corruption of humanity as a result of sin, so sin came into the world and then the human race became corrupt. That's what he's saying. Athanasius argued that the corruption of humanity as a result of sin was such that a new creation was required a radical reformation and restoration of what had been destroyed by sin. In other words, we don't just need a better way forward. We need a complete redo-over, a whole new makeup. He continues, the work of salvation is no lesser than the work of creation. Therefore, of one responsible for our recreation Therefore, the one responsible for our recreation can be no lesser than the one responsible for our creation. Did you hear that? So if Christ is a creature, he's not the creator. And he therefore cannot remake the human nature to save it. That's, that's serious stuff. So what Athanasius does in the first paragraph of his book is he says that the... Um, uh, God created the world and brought salvation through the same means. The Logos, the Word, Christ. So we know from John 1 that God creates the world through the Logos, through Christ. And then he brings salvation through the Logos, through Christ. So one of the first foundational arguments Athanasius lays down in his book is we need a recreation, not just a fixer-upper. We need to like level everything and rebuild the human race. So part of what Christ does is he comes and he is literally recreating the human nature. How does he do that? He comes around and shoves a wand in your face and each of you are... No, he takes on a body. Not just a body. Very important. That's a whole other thing. That'll be next week. Um, But he takes on a specific body. A specific body that comes from a specific human. A human like us. So he takes on a body that is exactly like ours, the same nature as ours. And by the word, the creator inhabiting a body which is the exact same nature as ours, he heals that body and by extension, therefore, heals all the bodies. So when the word, the divine nature, is united with a human nature in the incarnation of Christ, these two meet. And now the divine nature can dwell in every single other human nature. And that's what saves us. The creator comes into us and remakes us. Our corruption is gone and we are recreated. Um, C.S. Lewis called on the incarnation a masterpiece. Uh, reading it was a joy. 
I read, you know, a lot of crazy stuff and simple stuff and fun stuff and random stuff. Um, but On the Incarnation was one of the most enjoyable books of theology I've ever read, which is actually quite a significant thing to say, considering this was written in the 4th century. Usually you read someone from the 4th century and you kind of have to, like, reread the page at least twice. Um, Athanasius is not like that. He is succinct, simple, deep, yet completely understandable. And here's what tripped me out. It was theological and not light on that at all, yet incredibly devotional. It felt like you were worshiping Christ as you were reading this. It was so masterfully written. So even C.S. Lewis gave it, he literally called it a masterpiece. He wrote an essay on this, and that's where he called it a masterpiece. Um, I want to just race through the argument that Athanasius makes, and then we will conclude this with, where can we go from here? So basically what he does is he opens his book with the problem. The problem is corruption. Little different than how evangelicals go about the gospel, right? Our problem is sin and hell. Um, it's, it's, it's the same thing kind of, but there's a little nuance here. His problem with the world is corruption. Corruption is the result of sin. Corruption is what's happening to our nature. We were made in the image of God, but corruption has marred that image, and so we no longer share the image and the nature of God. So now there's this chasm between us and God. That's how he's teaching. So we say the same thing. We just use the word sin. Sin is what has done this. But sin affects the corruption. Now, we were born originally. um, We were originally born mortal. We were going to die. Wait, originally born? Created. We were created mortal. We weren't created to live. Let me say this. Okay. We were created with the ability to die. But God made a way for us not to die. But it depended upon our obedience. So here's what he says. He says, though we were by nature subject to corruption, that's mortality, the grace of our union with the word made us capable of escaping from the natural law, mortality, provided that we retain the beauty of innocence with which we were created. That is to say, the presence of the word, that's Christ, with us shielded us from the natural corruption. So yeah, we would have naturally died. But in the garden, we have communion with Christ. We have this union with him. We have this fellowship. And that shielded us. His eternal life shielded us from mortality. Well, sin broke in and broke this union and this fellowship. And thus brought us to death. And what Athanasius describes this as is a reversal of our creation. So God takes nothing and makes something and boom, there's humanity made in my image, right? There was nothing. Now there's humans made in my image. Sin comes and takes this and dismantles us made in his image, corruption. So it's decreating us. And he talks about us as becoming nothingness again. Sin reverses the creation. So if we were from nothing made, then we go from made to nothing. So he says like this, the transgression of the commandment was making them turn back again according to their nature. And as they had at the beginning come into being out of non-existence, so were they now on the way to returning through corruption to non-existence again. This is where we were. Before Christ came, we were literally sending our way into non-existence. We were, Paul says, dead in our trespasses and sins. So the presence and love of the word had called them into being. Inevitably, therefore, when they lost the knowledge of God, they lost existence with it. For it is God alone who exists. Evil is non-being. 
the negation and antithesis of good. So we literally stop existing when we are dead in our sins. That's what he says. So what's the solution to this? Well, the solution isn't we need someone to guide us into a better way of living. No. The solution is that we must be recreated. How do we do that? How does God do that? In Christ's incarnation, his taking on human flesh. So he sets it up. There's a lot of arguments he makes, but the one I want to really get to is that um, he... uh, he sets up what I thought was a good argument. Some would say, well, why can't we just repent from our sin? Leave our sin and then we're, we're saved. That's a, it makes sense, right? Oh yeah, just turn away from it and then God forgives us. He says the problem is, is that repentance only causes you to stop sinning. But repentance can't undo the corruption that your past sin has done to your nature. So there has to be an intervention. You cannot do this. Um, so, he says, um, yeah, I just, I'll just skip that here. So only Christ can recreate us. He says it was Christ's part and his alone, both to bring again the corruptible to incorruptible and to maintain for the Father his constancy of character with all. For Christ alone, being word of the Father and above all, was in consequence both able to recreate all and worthy to suffer on behalf of all and to be an ambassador for all with the Father. So, because Christ is above all, because he's co-eternal with the Father, not a creature, he can therefore recreate all. And he can also come and suffer on behalf of all. He goes more into how he can represent all of us and what he does in a moment. But that's the, his argument is that only by Christ coming to us can our corruption be healed. So the problem is corruption through sin. Um, the solution is that we must be recreated so that the corruption becomes incorruption. And that will happen when Christ comes as a human. So then his, the result of this is this, um, that when Christ comes, his recreation overcomes our corruption. It overcomes it all. But how does Christ do this? Well, Athanasius argues that we sinned, and sin makes us corruptible, which means we're going to die. We're no longer going to live in God's eternity. So now we are owned by death. He calls it the law of death. Sin puts you under the law of death. Now, this is what Paul says in Romans 6, uh, yeah, 6.23. The wages of sin is death. So another way of understanding the wages of sin is death is to say death becomes your master and you are paid by him, right? He's, he owns you now. You, you obey his rule, his law. So he talks about we are under the law of death. So to free us from death, he has to fulfill the law of death. You can't, he, 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 yeah, he has to be fair because he said we would die if we sin. So instead of just kicking death out, he has to actually fulfill the law of death. How does he fulfill the law of death? He dies. He pays death's demand for everybody with his own death. You can only die and do that if you become a human. And you can only pay for all the humans' debt of sin, or debt of death, debt to death, if you are a human dying on behalf of all the humans. And you can only die on behalf of all humans as a human if you're also God, the creator of the humans. Because the creator can stand in for his creation. That's the idea. And Athanasius is making it super clear that it is impossible for salvation to happen unless Christ is co-eternal with the Father. (sighs) 
I'm debating how much of him to read. I'll just say I summarized that well enough. Okay. But then we'll, we'll read this. Um, so he satisfies the law of death. The law of death has been fulfilled. So now no one has to die. That's the idea. Um, but furthermore is that Christ, in what he does, puts death in his debt. Humans were in debt to death, but his coming and dying actually flipped the script, and now death is in debt to Christ. That's why the Bible says that we don't die. Death has absolutely no say on us. Um, And it's because, he goes on to say, it's because Christ is above all. He's mightier than all. He's the creator. He's co-eternal with the Father. And he was sinless. So when death took him, death overreached its domain. And so now death is a transgressor by taking Christ. Death is now in debt to Christ because it has wronged Christ. That's the idea. That's the image that Athanasius is painting. So that's how Christ conquers death by dying. Um, so, uh, Athanasius summarizes the benefits of Christ's incarnation like this. This is toward the end of his book. He says, in short, Such and so many are the Savior's achievements that follow from his incarnation that to try to number them is like gazing at the open sea and trying to count the waves. One cannot see all the waves with with one's eyes, for when one tries to do so, those that are following after the ones you just counted baffle one's senses. So you're there at the beach, right? You're trying to count the waves you see. As soon as you got those counted, there's that many more that have just replaced those waves. You count those, and they've been all replaced. That's what he's trying to say. The benefits of the incarnation are such that as you try to enumerate these, you just realize, oh, wait, there's there's five more, and oh, there's five more, and oh, there's five more, and so forth. So, okay, so what are the three lessons we can take from um, Athanasius' life, his efforts, and, and the beautiful doctrine of Christ's divinity that we have secured for us through his work. Like, wait, what can we do with this? I think there's three lessons we can learn. The first is this. Athanasius was courageous. He stood in the face of a lot of hostility and never backed down. We can too, but we need his conviction. So the first lesson is that courage comes from conviction. Courage comes from conviction. I think we sometimes feel like we can never be courageous for Christ or we look at martyrs or hear their stories like, I can't do that. Because we don't have the same conviction that they had. We kind of walk around with this quasi like, I know Jesus is important to my salvation somehow, but we don't really know what's worth dying for and what's not. What's worth compromising and to be cool and in vogue with the times and what is worth fighting against. But when you know what is white and what is black, it gives you courage because you know what you're standing for and what you're up against. So we need to understand our convictions and that will give us courage. Um, uh for example, today we have this desire to see a Christianity without doctrine, right? There's a lot of angst for people to see religions coexist. And so what we've done really well, and why I'm sometimes very skeptical about certain modern books, I'm really wondering who's writing it from what perspective, because there's a lot of talk about basically just dumbing down our doctrines so that it's more adaptable to other basic spiritual beliefs. And, but when you really look at what we believe, it's incompatible with every single other spiritual belief. Even the ones that look similar 
are very different when you dig down into it. And um, we need to... A Christ without doctrine is a Christ without weight. If we don't know where we stand on the nature of Christ, then who is Christ to you? It makes me feel good. And then the other thing is that the, what I've read in these people that are doing this, trying to de-doctrinize the church, is basically they try to say in the history of the church, all the doctrines were up for grabs at one point. They really, like, really don't do their homework on church history, and they say it was all up for grabs, and basically just political powers made things happen the way they did. Wait, really? If that's the case, why did Athanasius spend his life battling Arianism? Why wasn't it dealt with in one blow, if it was really just a political scheme? That's not the case at all. In fact, what we see instead is with the matter like this, the church patiently allowed the doctrine to fight itself out until the weaker one died. How do you find truth? Let that and falsehood run, because falsehood always runs out of steam at some point. Truth will go on and on and on and on. And we can therefore find confidence in our doctrine in Christ. Um, Truth wins the test of time. Second lesson we can learn is that the power of Christ is not experienced logically, but practically. The power of Christ is not experienced logically, but practically. Athanasius learned self-denial and his godliness through the uh, Egyptian desert monks. Uh, that's He visited them a lot. Even as a child, he actually went out to feed uh, Anthony the Great, who was the first monk. Um, he learned from them. And so he therefore had this grasp of who Christ is because he wasn't just sitting there reading books and making arguments. Oh, this sounds logical enough, and that doesn't sound logical at all. And he was actually experiencing Christ through his daily life and rhythm. And so he could understand why this doctrine mattered, where others might have gone with who's popular and who sounds good. Um, Christ is meant to be experienced practically, not just intellectually. And then, um, like Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, the pure in heart see God. So if we're not working at purity of heart, if we're not striving against sin, then we're never going to get the significance of Christ. He's just going to seem like a really cool example to us. And then third lesson, and I think this is very important. Only Christology, not psychology, can fully heal us. Only Christology, not psychology, can fully heal us. What does that mean? Christology is our belief about Christ. Everything we just said tonight. Only the fact that he is eternally God and takes on a body just like ours through the Virgin Mary, only because of that are we healed. But psychology might make us feel better about our problems. It might make our corruption feel a little less corrupt, but it's not actually going to heal us. Only the maker can heal us. Scripture, as we read in Colossians, emphasizes the preeminence of Christ above all things. It's not money. It's not personality types. It's not the healing of wounded egos. It's not getting the perfect marital match. It's not finding the career that will make you happy forever so that work is never work. It's just pleasure. It's a myth. No matter what you like doing, it does always work. Um, None of these things heal us, but these are the things that culture puts and dangles in front of us and says, this is how you feel better with that life. And I talk to high schoolers at a Christian school from apparently Christian families who have the same idea of what the good life looks like as the world does. 
It's it's crazy to me. Um, sorry. So sometimes I just preach out of just my frustration. Um, but we need Christology. We need to actually know who Christ is, what he did, and how we're connected and united in him, and how we live into that power way more then we need psychology. And I'm sorry, psychologists and therapists and all you who work hard to help people feel better. That is needed, but that's not the solution. And you know that. You you who do those that work know you are not Christ. So let's close with a question. How preeminent is Christ in your life? Is he more so now tonight than he was earlier? I hope so. Are you willing to, with Athanasius, Contend against all the forces of the devil that want to diminish Christ in your life? Are you willing to make that a lifelong struggle? If you do, we will lay a wonderful foundation to see the church go up and up and up. Because right now, we're kind of jackhammering our foundation to make it like the Tower of Babel. Everyone's language works. Not Arianism. Well, that's just a start. We could talk about so many other of these heresies that have been dealt with. And you're like, no, please don't tonight. Please don't. I won't. Um, How preeminent is Christ in your life? But here's the good news. As we move toward praying for ourselves, our community, the world, the church, the good news is that Christ knows we've succumbed to sin and that we're corrupt. And he wants to heal us. Like, see how much he went through to heal our corruption. So fear not repenting of your sins fear not saying yeah i have totally dumbed you down christ he's like oh you did i had no idea no he knows already he's gonna be so happy to hear you like coming like the prodigal son when it says and uh he what did he say what it says something like he came back to his senses um and christ rejoices when he happened when that happens so fear not and just come before him now and then we get to receive communion and um go home so oh no potluck all right glory to the father and to the son and to the holy spirit now and ever and unto ages of ages amen